Welcome back, creeps. Hello. <laughs> I'm going to do something that uh, we never do. I'm Adam, and this is Dulce. Oh, yeah. And That's me. If you are new here, because we just kind we just... of blabber on every week. Yeah, we do. Um, We're a husband and wife, and we tell stories to each other. So every week I tell a story, or Dulce tells a story, and then after one of us goes, the other one goes, and then we switch it up. Yeah, we take turns Yeah, on and each other. <laughs> <laughs> and our patron of the week this week is Jennifer Snap of Oh Snap, a true crime podcast. Make sure to go check them out on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Jennifer's a longtime friend of Weekly Creep, and we very much appreciate her. Yeah, she's super friendly. Yeah. We like her. <laughs> Before we get started, we put up a poll on Instagram yesterday asking we whether we should do a vegan week. One complete week of vegan food and make a video of it. And an alarming number, well, alarming for us, number of people voted and said, yes, we should do it. But it's almost split perfectly, six, like two thirds for yes, one third for no. We're going to call it weekly veg. And... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so let us know what you think. And I had something else that I wanted to ask as well, but I cannot remember. Anyway, Dulce is going first. Weekly salad. <laughs> I can go on. Yeah, you can. Um, so Dulce has a terrible story for us this week. It's absolutely awful. What we're going to do, what I'm going to do, is kind of like a compliment sandwich. Where I give you, it, it were, you know, like a compliment sandwich is where like you get some constructive criticism. No, you get a compliment, constructive criticism, and you finish it off with a compliment. Whereas this, the way I'm setting it up is last week we talk about Disney. This week I'm talking about something awful. Next week I'm going to talk about Disney. <laughs> Anyways. You know, I listened to some radio this morning, like actual radio. Yeah. And it's awful. I it forgot is. my phone. I left it at home. Well, and it's awful because of the amount of ads they put on things. I didn't even get to the ads. I put it on, uh, they were playing like some Blink-182 song, and I was like, oh, this isn't too bad. Uh, so I caught that second half of the song, and then it was like, hey, welcome back, too. And then they were talking about mac and cheese and Live Aid and how they're both the same thing because, I mean, now we're doing it, so now these people are forced <laughs> to listen to it. But they were like, yeah, I don't even know why they made so many Live Aids. Oh, my God. And then the other guy was like, man, it's just like that mac and cheese, man. You go to, my kid eats a lot of mac and cheese. I don't like mac and cheese. And literally, <laughs> I was home before the ads even started. And they were still talking about the same shit. They had a caller on, right? Yeah. And the caller obviously called up to say like, oh, can you play this song or like win that competition or something? And the guy answers the phone. And he's like, hey, what do you think about mac and cheese? <laughs> And the guy was like, oh, you know, I don't really know. I don't, I don't like that mac and cheese of them. And then they went off talking. And that, so I thought that was it. The call was over. Yeah. And they were talking about Live Aid and mac and cheese again. The guy was still on the phone. Wow. I still don't know why he was calling. So <laughs> that, either that way. poor I, bastard. By the time I got home, I was like really appreciative of. Spotify. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is fucking terrible. Like. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a question on YouTube. 
I don't know why these celebrity uh, channels sometimes post up on my feed because I don't watch anything about celebrities. But there was this one, I think it was called Celebrity Moments or something, and they posted a, a question and it said, who's your favorite celebrity? And normally when I get... Normally when I get when I get content from any of those channels, I just do the don't recommend channel or I don't want to see posts from them again. But just for shits and giggles, I just wrote macaroni and cheese. <laughs> so that's interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I thought she was going to like whoever runs that channel delete my comment, but they ended up liking it. Everybody was like Selena Gomez and Taylor Swift. And I was like, okay, fair. Macaroni and cheese. No, I... <laughs> respect my opinion <laughs> well now that our weekly radio segment has finished let's get on with this story <laughs> <laughs> right so my sources are people wikipedia biography heavy skeletal development abc people magazine right yeah Not just random people <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> my sources are people just randos humans bunch of randos <laughs> so if you've been following us uh we are diving into the serious ongoing criminal activity that has made headlines specifically in cleveland ohio as of late honestly not picking on cleveland it was a pure coincidence that a lot of topics that jumped out at me lately were ones that came from ohio and i don't think i'll do one state in focus per month even though it seems that way because <laughs> i'm sure i'll leave out stories that people probably want to hear us discuss but about today's story i don't think i've ever heard of this story before i did my research but the more i dig into it the more i realize that this is a mainstream story there's like a lifetime movie about it i personally like to research stories that aren't mainstream as you as some of you probably know because i don't want our listeners to get regurgitated repetitive information if i can help it yeah if you heard of this one my apologies also, I'm issuing a trigger warning for rape and child abuse. But it is um, really subjective, like what is mainstream, because for some people, just purely depending on what they might have perchance seen before or what podcast they listen to, mm -hmm. some like stories that we think are the most relevant or most overdone, they might never have heard of. So this could still be their first time regardless of how oversaturated you think this particular topic would be. Normally, not, I would you know? agree with you, but I asked Mo about this and she's heard of it. She doesn't listen to podcasts. She only watches CNN. <laughs> that's, that's her media of choice. Her leisure activity of choice. Anyways. Well, you're got more than likely going to learn something you didn't know anyway. <laughs> right. So, who are we talking about? We're talking about Ariel Castro. Ted Bundy. No. <laughs> no. Ariel Castro was born July 10th, 1960 in Puerto Rico to Pedro Castro and Lillian Rodriguez, who divorced while he was still a child. He moved to the U.S. with his mother and his three siblings to join more of his family members in Cleveland, Ohio. Castro found himself a girlfriend, Grimelda Figueroa, in the 80s, with whom he had four children with. The family moved together into a home on 2207 Seymour Avenue. The house was a two-story home with a basement. Grimelda's sister and her husband claimed that that's when Castro began beating Grimelda. He broke her nose, ribs, and arms. He also caused a blood clot to form in her brain that resulted in an inoperable tumor. Fucking hell. Yeah. 
1993, Castro was arrested on domestic violence, but he was released. Grimelda moved out of the house with her four children in tow and secured custody of all of them. Figueroa filed charges against him for beating her and for frequently abducting their daughters. She was granted a temporary restraining order that was only valid for a couple of months. Grimelda died in 2012 of that tumor that I mentioned. Before his arrest at age 52, Castro worked as a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District until he was fired for bad judgment, including making an illegal U-turn with children on his bus, using his bus to go grocery shopping, leaving a child on the bus while he went for lunch, (laughs) and leaving the bus unattended while he took a nap at home. He was earning eighteen ninety one per hour when he was discharged. Jesus, that's not bad. <laughs> no. I would no. I mean not at that time. At the yeah. time of his arrest, Castro's home was in foreclosure after three years of unpaid real estate taxes. So now we're gonna get to know Michelle Knight. Okay. Michelle Knight was born April nineteen eighty one. Knight grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. She had a rough childhood. At one point, her family lived out of a car, her and her family. When they did get a home, they had no sofa, no stove, and Knight said she cooked hot dogs on a space heater, which, by the way, took four hours, according to her. Okay, just eat them fucking cold at that stage, though. Uh, Maybe she just wanted it hot. She helped raise her siblings and even delivered her baby brother in their home while she was just a little girl. As a girl, she wanted to pursue a career as a firefighter and later aspired to become a veterinarian. Unfortunately, Knight, whose height of four feet seven inches, earned her the nickname Shorty and caused her to be bullied in school. At the age of 14, she told her mother that she'd been assaulted at school and she was sexually abused at home by a male relative. She ran away and lived on the streets for a time. She told a news outlet that she slept under a bridge until she found a garbage can to live in that she took places with her. Like she just lugged it around. She stole a blanket from someone's back porch, crawled inside her garbage can, and hid herself in there so no one would see her. That's kind of clever, I guess. Yeah. She found a church and visited there when they had lunch for homeless people. A family member recognized her at the church and called her dad to come pick her up. She went to school where she was heavily bullied again. She was shoved into lockers and down the stairs. At age 18, she gave birth to a son, Joey, who she says was later grabbed by her mother's boyfriend, who was drunk at the time. So her mother's boyfriend grabbed Joey by the leg and yanked it. He ended up fracturing his knee. Knight rushed Joey to the hospital, and social services was called. Social services place a child in foster care. So right now she's 21. Okay. On August 23rd, 2002, Knight got lost on her way to a hearing at family court in hopes of winning her son back. Knight stopped at a store to ask for directions when she encountered Castro, who offered assistance with directions to the court. Castro offered Knight a lift to the court. He said, quote, I know where it's at. I can take you straight to it. 
It'll only take me five minutes. Knight said, quote, Okay, I'm gonna make it. This is gonna happen. Knight recognized Castro because he was the father of one of her friends from school. So she got into the car with him and headed to his house. They arrived at his home because Castro claimed he needed to pick up his daughter and wanted to show Knight some puppies so she can take one home to her son. He instead took Knight hostage. She said, quote, He ripped up my son's picture right in front of me, the only picture I had, and said, You'll never see him. That hurt so bad. It was like a knife going deeper and deeper into my chest. He told her, You're not going to leave for a long time. And he commenced to undress himself. She said she dropped to the floor in that moment and began to beg him to let her go, that she needed to get her son. This was the first day out of the 11 years she was held captive by Castro. Knight's family reported her missing after she never made it back home, but ultimately believed she might have run away because she was so upset over losing her son. Knight's mother posted flyers around the city about her daughter, but Knight was eventually removed from the FBI's database of missing persons in 2003. But the mom and her got on like well? Like it was the uh, mom? It wasn't the best relationship. Oh, okay. So now we're going to get to know Amanda Berry. Amanda Berry grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and as a teen worked at a local burger shop. It was the day before her 17th birthday, and she told a news outlet, quote, I almost called off work that day because the next day was my birthday. You know, what if? What if I would have called off that day? While she walked home from work, a vehicle was following her down the street. Ariel Castro was inside the vehicle and asked her if she needed a ride home. She knew Castro because he was her bus driver and the father of her friend Arlene for middle school. Barry says he told her, quote, He's like, well, she's at my house. Would you like to go see her? Castro said of his daughter, who lived in another neighborhood with her mother, because remember, he lost custody of her. She agreed, and they entered his house on Seymour Avenue. Castro told Barry that Arlene must be in the bath, so they should just wait for her to get out. He started showing her the house and then took her to her room upstairs, where a woman she had never seen before was sleeping in a bedroom in front of a TV set. This was Michelle Knight, who at this point was in captivity for a year. I'm going to read from an ABC article now. He took me to the next bedroom, and it was just really dark in there. And he didn't turn on the lights. And there was a little, like, a little room off of the bigger bedroom, kind of a big closet. And he took me in there, and he told me to pull down my pants. And from there I knew, like, this was not going to be good. He took me to the basement, and he taped my wrists, and he taped my ankles, and he put a belt around my ankles over the tape. He put a helmet over my head, and he said, just be quiet, and don't make any noise, and I'll take you home. Barry said Castro chained her to a pole, shut off the lights, and left her in the dark with the television on. I just started screaming and crying, somebody please help me, you know? And nobody... Nobody came, she said. I was so scared that I was going to die. I didn't think I was going to ever make it home. At one point, Castro used Amanda's phone to call her parents and say, I have Mandy. She wants to be with me. 
They pinpointed the area where her phone was used and searched the area, but they found nothing. Oh, when I say they, I mean the authorities. Sorry. Oh, okay. (laughs) Barry stayed in a dark, dirty room the size of a closet with a filthy mattress and a bucket to use for her bathroom. She was fed a bag of chips or crackers once a day, and that's it. Castro only acted nice whenever he wanted to use her sexually. And this is a quote from Barry. I mean, he tried to act nice, but he's like, well, maybe you need to take a shower. And I had to take a shower with him. Gross. Yeah. She said she had to mentally check out when the abuse started. In her diary, she wrote how many times he raped her on the top of each page. She hoped that when Castro was caught, the authorities would read her diary and use it to decide his punishment. Barry's mother reported her missing and refused to believe the notions she got from people that maybe she ran away. Barry's mother would never see her daughter again as she died of heart failure before her daughter was released from captivity. What Barry's mom didn't know is that Amanda was watching Montel Williams in 2004 on the night that she went on the show to talk to the medium, Sylvia Brown, in hopes of getting good news about her missing daughter. Brown told Luana Miller, who was Barry's mom, that Barry was no longer alive. Barry said, quote, I just broke down crying because I couldn't believe she said that. And then my mom broke down crying, so that hurt even worse. That's such a pretty head fuck for the poor young one to have to sit there watching that. Like, Now we're going to get to know Georgina, or Gina, if you like, de Jesus. She was born in Cleveland, Ohio on April 1st, 1990. Her tight-knit family included her father, Felix de Jesus, mother, Nancy Ruiz, sister, Myra, and brother, Ricardo. As a 14-year-old, de Jesus walked the almost 40 blocks from her home in Cleveland to Wilbur Wright Middle School, passing through commercial areas mixed with rundown areas frequented by prostitutes. On April 2, 2004, she made the same walk home with Arlene Castro before they parted ways. As De Jesus walked home, she encountered Arlene's father, Ariel Castro, whom she recognized. He was also a friend of her dad's. Ariel Castro asked Gina if she had seen Arlene and Gina told him she was around the corner. He asked her if she could help him find her and she agreed. They ended up going to Castro's home where he told Gina he needed help moving his stereo, but instead began grooming himself in the mirror. Quote, he was like fixing his eyebrows and like trimming his mustache and cutting his nose hairs. The Jesus said, he's like starts like touching me and stuff. And then I'm like, what are you doing? You could go to jail. He just switches up like, okay, you're going to go home now. But he said, You can't go through the same door you came in. Castro led her to the basement where he grabbed her and chained her up. He managed to escape the chains initially and fight him, but he soon overpowered her. Gina said Castro liked to put her hair in his mouth as he raped her. She never knew why. There were no witnesses to Gina's abduction, so an Amber Alert wasn't issued. Just so you guys that don't know, an Amber Alert is an emergency response system that disseminates information about a missing person, usually a child, by media broadcasting or electronic roadway signs. 
The family was fuming over this, rightfully so. Gina was featured on a national television program called America's Most Wanted for three consecutive years, in 2004, 2005, and 2006. A moment of irony here. In 2004, when Castro's estranged son, Anthony, then a journalism student, wrote about De Jesus' disappearance and its impact on the community in an article that was published in a Cleveland-area community newspaper. Oh, shit, yeah. Isn't that crazy? In the beginning, Castro kept the girls separated, and they were not allowed to speak to each other. Windows were boarded, and a hole was cut on the bottom of their doors for ventilation. The rooms were locked from the outside. The three had buckets as bathrooms that were rarely emptied. The girls were allowed to leave their rooms only to do house chores, which came with their own set of rules. Quote, We had to use like a tiny drop of dish soap to wash like a sink full of dishes, Barry said. De Jesus added, We had to put the pan in the center of the stove. Barry said, It couldn't be a little to the left or a little to the right. So just this very bizarre... It's really controlling. Like. Yeah, I think that's what it was for. To fill the empty hours, Barry kept a diary in notebooks, napkins, and even on fast food bags. The black and white television was their only window to the outside world. All three actually kept their own diaries. I think I might have mentioned that before. Just in case you don't remember, all three of them told their, their stories. Yeah. And did he provide them for them? No. Like they were like secret... Well, yeah, because like, for example, Barry, like if she found a notebook, she'd write it on a notebook or on a napkin or like how I said on a fast food bag. She just yeah. wanted. And then would like have to keep it hidden, I guess. Yeah, they would squirrel them away. Amanda and Gina's stories, they can be found in a book called Hope, a memoir of survival in Cleveland. All three girls were repeatedly raped and abused. Knight reportedly became pregnant five times and miscarried each time. Castro induced these miscarriages by beating and starving her. Lack of coverage for Michelle Knight's disappearance did not go unnoticed to Castro, as he rubbed it in her face. Your families don't care about you. Ain't you glad I took you? Knight recalls Castro telling her. I felt like he hated me the most because I was the one that stood my ground. The girls were physically held by ropes on some days and chains on others. Castro covered Gina's head with a bag when he raped her. His reasoning? Because he knew her family well, and because she was a good friend to his daughter. What a fucking weirdo. Yeah. Amanda Berry realized she was pregnant with Castro's child on her 20th birthday. She said, quote, I was terrified. How? I mean, I barely eat. And I'm chained to a wall, and I have a bucket for a bathroom. This is his kid, you know. How do I feel about that? And she resembled him a lot. And I would look at her, and I just felt like, she's mine. She's mine. So Barry gave birth to Jocelyn in the basement on Christmas Day in 2006. Barry tried her best to give Jocelyn a normal life, given her circumstances. Castro sometimes allowed Jocelyn to play outside. He told his neighbor, Charles Ramsey, that the little girl was his granddaughter. Barry was also Jocelyn's teacher. 
She taught her the alphabet, shapes, colors, and basic math. Jocelyn would see the chains on her mother and begin to ask questions when she was old enough. Castro instructed Barry to call them bracelets in order to normalize them to the little girl. When Jocelyn was three, Castro took the chains off of Barry because of Jocelyn. Barry worried about the relationship that was developing between Castro and Jocelyn. He took her to church on Sundays, played with her outside, and just treated her differently. And what about his actual kids? Like, Well, her remember, they grew up without him. And so they were just completely separate, had nothing to do with him? Like, yeah, because their mom um, saw to that yeah, with the restraining yeah. order and keeping them away from Castro. Yeah, no, I just thought maybe as they grew up, they would like try to reconnect. I guess not. Fucking hell. I would assume not. She probably did. The mother, I'm saying, uh, probably told him what a horrible person he was. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I mean, if my mom told me that, I probably wouldn't have any desire either. Yeah. Or if my uncles and aunts told me the reason why my mom died is because of my dad, then I... Oh, of course, she died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know what? She died in 2012, so it was probably because the things that he... they the. The kids probably heard from the family. Yeah, yeah. So Barry said, quote, I was nervous. Like, would he ever think about touching her because, you know, he had his problems? Castro would go to church every Sunday and go straight home just to torture the three girls. It's always the ones that go to church every Sunday. Pillars of the community. Yeah, the ones with family values. I just finished listening to a series on the Duggar family. Oh, God. Check out someplace underneath. It's unbelievable like it's made me really angry obviously but these religious types are just covering up for one another like Mm -hmm. so i have no faith in any of them (laughs) on may 6 2013 a year after his ex-wife died Mm -hmm. the three girls were rescued after ariel left the house to run errands quote jocelyn goes downstairs and then runs back up and she says i don't find daddy daddy's nowhere around My heart immediately started pounding, Barry said. I'm like, should I chance it? If I'm going to do it, I need to do it now. For the first time in 10 years, Barry said she found her bedroom door unlocked without Castro around. Downstairs, the front door was open but wired with an alarm. Barry pounded on the padlock screen door that could only be forced open wide enough for her to squeeze her arm through so she could wave it around. Charles Ramsey responded to her screams and went to break the door open. If you remember the name Charles Ramsey, I'm glad you're paying attention because Charles Ramsey was uh, the neighbor that Castro talked to about Jocelyn. He told her that that was his granddaughter. Yeah, yeah. So Charles Ramsey was the one that responded to Barry's screams. He went to break the door open. Ramsey later told the news outlet that on that day, lots of people were around and they heard Barry screaming, but they didn't move to do anything. They just kind of of let it happen. Barry and her six-year-old daughter, Jocelyn, went to a nearby home to call 911. She told a dispatcher, quote, help me. I'm Amanda Barry. I've been kidnapped and I've been missing 10 years and I'm here. I'm free now. The police were dispatched to Castro's house, and they released Gina and Michelle. After the girls were released, they were taken to the hospital. 
Knight suffered loss of vision and nerve damage. Gina de Jesus had a long recovery ahead of her because she was only 14 when she was abducted and her neck bones were fused together and it restricted her movement. Oh, what, from being chained up? Because she was physically restrained for long stretches of time. Jesus. So here's what I learned about bone growth in teenagers. This, this is why that random ass skeletal development um, source was cited. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> As with childhood bone growth, it is important to acquire weight-bearing physical activity on most days of the week in order to achieve a high peak bone mass. Also, it's still important to maintain a healthy diet, including calcium and vitamin D. Calcium is necessary for mineralization of the bone and cartilage matrix. The vitamin D is needed in order for the body to efficiently absorb the calcium. Hmm. I think based on this, it's safe to say that Gina is probably suffering and is going to suffer in the future from bone-related diseases. Yeah, what's it? Osteo osteoporosis? Yeah, or like arthritis, basically anything joint-related because she was malnourished and restrained for such a long time. Yeah. Poor girl. Yeah. I mean, that's fucking probably the least of our worries, but I mean, on top of everything else, you know what I mean? It's one of those things that not isn't just an emotional scar, but it's a physical scar. Yeah, that's going to keep reminding her. Yeah. Knight's mother spoke to the press about hoping to reunite with her daughter after she got released from the hospital, but Knight avoided her family instead. On May 8th, 2013, Amanda Berry and Gina de Jesus were reunited with their families. Jocelyn entered first grade, and her reading levels were above average. Yay. I know. But Michelle Knight was the one whose family didn't even really look for her. That's why she didn't want to reunite with her mom. I, that's, that's the feeling I get. Yeah, yeah. Well, fair play to her then. Good for her. Good for her. For the, but the reasons why, I'm not sure. Maybe it was because... Either she gave up or maybe it was because, or that's just what it seemed like. Or maybe she realized that she had come from an abusive situation into another one. And now she just doesn't want anything to do with it. Who knows? I feel like it was a power move on her part. And... Maybe. So where was Castro while the girls were escaping? Castro was out drinking. I feel like that's a sign of a man who doesn't have a care in the world. Like not worried that he get found out. And I also feel like he actually thought that they would be with him as long as he wanted them. There was literally nothing that made him doubt this fantasy situation. Yeah, it sounds like he had some like major fucking God complex. I mean, 10 years, dude. 11 years with night. Yeah, it's fucking insane. That's yeah. So Castro was arrested on May 6, 2013. On August 1st, 2013, before his sentencing, Castro addressed the court for nearly 20 minutes in which he said he was a good person and not a monster. Get the fuck out of here. But that he was addicted to sex and pornography and had practiced the art of masturbation the from art. a young age. Yes. Oh, just so happens I'm something of an artist myself, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he claimed that he had never beaten or tortured the women and insisted that, quote, most of the, quote, sex he had with them was consensual. Yeah, yeah, right. He shifted between apologizing and blaming the FBI for failing to catch him 
as well as blaming his victims themselves for getting in a car with a stranger, along with insisting to the court that when he had sex with them, he discovered that they were not virgins. This, do you know as what? As if that means anything. Yeah, as if it does. But if you told me all this and then told me, and so the judge said, okay, <laughs> I honestly wouldn't be that shocked at this point. Yeah. He would alternatively shift back into apologetic comments saying, I hope they can find in their hearts to forgive me because we had a lot of harmony going on in that home. No, you didn't. Yeah. So he would go back and forth from like being saying like, I'm sorry. And then victim blaming. And then also painting it to be like, it was like Seinfeld. Or like saying that he was a victim of child abuse as a kid. Fuck off. That kind of stuff. Kind of like the Menendez brothers, how they claim to be sexually molested by their father and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. But actually, fun Menendez uh, fact. Did you know that they are featured on a basketball card? What? No. Yeah, I don't ask me who the basketball player is. But right after they murdered their pa- parents, they went to a basketball game. They were sitting courtside. And their picture made it onto this fucking basketball card. That's so strange. So, yeah, another true I bet it's worth lots of money, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Would have to be. Yeah. But, yeah, some other... I saw it on Instagram the other day. I was blown away. I was like, fuck. It was exactly like that. Just, (laughs) fuck. Anyway, he gave this psychotic speech right after Michelle Knight told the court of the atrocities that Castro put her through. Literally right after. Just side note, she was the only one who showed up at Castro's trial. Fair play. I'm I'm a big fan of this Michelle Michael. I think she's one brave, brave girl, lady, woman, person. When when I was watching like news segments about her standing up to Castro in court, like pe- like the news reporters wouldn't stop obsessing over her size. And it's like, stop mentioning she's short. Yes, we get it. She is a small lady. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Castro was sentenced to life, plus a thousand years in prison. Whoa. After he pled guilty to 937 counts of kidnapping and rape. Wow. I've never heard anything like that. Yeah. On August 7th, 2013, Castro's house was demolished and has been turned into a garden. This is what I read. I didn't check it. I forgot to check it because I was exhausted by the time I was done with this story. But apparently the house has been completely blurred out on the street view on Google Maps. Story checks out. Let me see. Oh, shit. Yep. What are those things on top? They look like wires. Oh, wow. That's insane. That's like almost jarring. Why didn't they just drive down that street again and remap it? Like, You know what I would have done? Instead of blurring it out, I would have just put a white box there, like a white square. I think that would have been less jarring. <laughs> so Knight's last words to Castro were, I got my life back. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. Unfortunately, he only lasted in prison for a month. He was put in solitary for his safety because they knew that people were going to be gunning for him. I mean, honestly, they should just leave them in general population. Yeah, I, I honestly don't understand why they do this. I really don't. It's not like the prison systems are even like they're all private, aren't they? So they don't give a fuck. I don't know. 
just bad for their business. I guess they don't want it on their records. I don't know. So where are they now? Well, Castro's dead. Georgina de Jesus and Amanda Berry got a chance to graduate high school two years after they were released. John Marshall High School awarded them honorary diplomas. De Jesus was given the quinceanera she never got when she turned eight, when she turned 15. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah. Barry now hosts a new segment about missing children and adults in Ohio. Barry's just enjoying her life now. She told a news outlet about the simple things that she enjoys that are easily taken for granted. She says, quote, I can walk outside when I want. Yeah. I can take my daughter to school. I can go to my friend's house. I can eat what I want. I can watch what I want. We just have a bright future and we'll see what comes. These people are amazing that they can just readapt and get on with their lives. I mean, you literally have no other choice. Yeah. Time waits for no one. Gina de Jesus. She's a co-founder of Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults. De Jesus and her cousin Sylvia Colon co-founded this nonprofit organization to help the families of missing people obtain resources to help them find their loved ones. De Jesus learned that while her family was looking for her, no one offered to help and there were no resources available to them. All her family could do was print flyers and hand them out. De Jesus's mom even remembers handing one directly to Castro. What her mother didn't know is that Castro would go home and give this to Gina while she was at his house. She vowed to return it to her in person one day, so she tucked it away for safekeeping. The organization also strives to deter abductions, exploitation, and trafficking. It's also a place for families and survivors to come for support and resources, provide prevention training to the community, and raise awareness to create a safe and secure community for all citizens. That's amazing. I know. Michelle Knight is now married to her husband, Miguel Rodriguez, and she's a best-selling author who has become an advocate for victims of domestic violence and human trafficking. She said, quote, I want to be that voice for the voiceless who can't speak for themselves. I want to give them a way to raise their voice and speak out against those things that are happening in their life. She lives outside of Cleveland now. When she isn't volunteering her time to women's shelters, she likes to enjoy her hobbies, which include cooking, gardening, and rehabilitating rescue animals. She mentioned that she would like to reconnect with the other women who were held captive with her, but I think she might be the only one that has a desire for that. The three have not spoken to each other since they were freed from Castro's home. And did they speak to each other at all when I they were... I think Barry and the Jesus do talk to each other, but for some reason they don't talk tonight. I'm sure, like, it just brings back all sorts of fucking horrific memories anyway. Yeah. So a few words from Knight regarding her experience. I chose to forgive Castro because I didn't want the emotional chain of that situation. I didn't want it to hold me back or control my life anymore, so I had to break free. I'm always going to remember what happened to me. It's never going to go away, she says. I survived a life of horrible things. I'm a survivor. That's what I want people to remember me as. And that's my story. Well, I definitely think that they're survivors all through them. That's fucking... What I, a... I was familiar with that story, but I didn't know all of the... The details. 
yeah, like it's just something else. Like, and the fact that there are other people in that exact situation right now is obviously horrifying. But now that people like Michelle Knight and Amanda Berry are, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like that they're working with other or their own charities and stuff and yeah. to try and help them. Like it's hopeful at least, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, well done for covering that. Yeah. There's a reason why I don't do those stories because I just can't. The reason I do is because it's it's important to not forget those kinds of stories. Yeah. Well, that's so, okay. So Disney next time. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I look forward to Disney next time. Are you ready to learn more about this black monk of Pontefract? Yes. See. Si. I'd also just like to shout out uh, Gordy who follows us on Instagram and listens to us because he's actually from the north of England. Mm-hmm. And he said that the accents last week were appalling. <laughs> so apologies, but love that you're probably going to get more this week. Yeah. If not this week, definitely next week. Because... Love that for you, Gordy. <laughs> right. So we left off last week with the Pritchard's daughter, Diane, being abused by the poltergeist they had named Fred. He had spent the evening flipping her out of bed and just placing the mattress on top of her, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. So this seems like Fred. I've just decided to call him Fred. Okay. Call it Fred, whatever. That's how I'm going to refer to this entity from now on. But it seemed like maybe Fred was just displaying his strength or not even necessarily just his strength, but his control. Mm -hmm. Like, I can lift a whole mattress and place it on top of you. So I'm not crushing you, but you can't move. Do you even lift, bro? Yeah, exactly, right? So Fred's a bro, got it. (laughs) He definitely is. Oh, yeah, he's also displaying the fact that, like, he could cause a lot of harm. Yeah. But I'm just not going to. Like, I just don't feel like it right now. Yeah. Which is scary in its own right, like. I'd say so, yeah. So word got out about what was going on in the house, naturally. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the 60s when neighbors actually spoke to one another (laughs) and a couple of local reporters showed up a couple of weeks after the activity had started and once the stories went out obviously like in the papers everybody fucking knew and all sorts of people started showing up at the house too and like i don't really know how the pritchards felt about all this but they're they're not rude people at all but they didn't let the people camp in their front garden when they requested it. <laughs> like a bunch of university students just knocked on the front door with tents and stuff. They were like, can we camp here? <laughs> what the fuck kind of... Yeah. What the hell are they going to see from out there? Well, this is the thing. Um, I'll get into it down the way, but the Pritchards were very accommodating to most people, mm-hmm. especially Jean. I don't know about Joe. Just say, not college kids. Just not sleeping overnight in their front garden okay that's fair yeah but they would let people in to like experience the place and stuff but at the same time they weren't glory hogs you know what i mean they were also modest about it yeah but they were just very open i think that's what i'm trying to say okay a neighbor even heard like there was a bus stop across the street or on the main road anyway in front of the house and a neighbor heard the bus driver announcing to his passengers that's the haunted house <laughs> as he pulled up outside at the, at the bus stop. Say it again for Gordy. 
That's the haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> Trolls we are. <laughs> Gordy's actually going to be on this one's listeners episode as well. I have his email sitting there and uh, I've yet to read it. Um, but people actually started sleeping on the grass verge in front of the house. Okay. And coal miners, I, I'm guessing it's coal miners, not just underage people uh <laughs> like they would be on their way to work early early in the morning and they just stop outside the house and they just sit there listening because fred would make such loud banging and crashing noises all throughout the night uh-huh. that they could literally hear this from outside from outside from across the road the the author kind of calls it his little like drum shows yeah and very much like the uh, poltergeist thing where it's not like he was banging on this wall or that wall like anytime they thought the noise was say coming from this room they would go there and it would seem to come from somewhere else just this poltergeist banging that comes from nowhere seems but, like he was a ventriloquist as well basically but he would do this almost every night mm. and the family weren't getting a whole sleep. lot of sleep like because yeah. it was loud like yeah. deafening mm-hmm. do you remember Vic no. So Vic was Jean's brother-in-law. Well, his sister, he was the one who went to the vicar or the reverend okay. when Philip suggested they get an exorcism. Okay. He was also the one who called the cops the very first night it happened. Remember that contained incident that happened a couple of years previous? Okay. His sister, Reen, was actually, quote, a bit psychic. Mm. So Jean and her, Jean and Reen, <laughs> um, they met one another down like in the local town one day just going about their daily business and they got chatting and Rean said like look I'll head over like I'm not afraid of ghosts let me go over and just have a little look see so she came over the next day and Jean showed her the mess that Fred had made in the bedrooms all three of the bedrooms just all the bedclothes had been taken off thrown around the room in piles the drawers had been pulled out and emptied uh, chairs upside down and Jean said she literally cleaned this like a half an hour ago that's wild and annoying yeah that's wildly annoying <laughs> so nothing actually happened while Reen was there that day but the following Saturday she came back over for lunch and her sandwich just flew off of her plate just wait oh Joe was gone to the pub mm-hmm. with friends or whatever and Granny Skulls was in the house but she was up in bed not feeling well. She remember I was saying she stayed there most weekends at this yeah. stage. So Reen helped Jean make some chicken sandwiches in the kitchen. And as they're standing there, the lights all go out. But a few minutes later, they come back on in their own. This in itself was strange because mm. when the lights went out, Jean was like, Oh, here we go, like this is it. But then when they came back on, she was like, Well, this is out of character because Normally, the whole deal is the lights go out. They have to go fish through the fucking cupboard, reset the breaker and all that. Like, that's his usual thing. But this is the first time that they've come back on on their own. Mm-hmm. So they're like, all right, fuck it, whatever. They put their, all their sambos and their tea on a, a tray and bring it into the living room to Philip and Diane. They had just put the tray of food down and the lights go off again. This time followed by a rushing sound as if there's a wind just blowing through the living room. Then shit starts flying around. 
Now it's dark, but I guess they can see a certain amount. Like it's still the daytime. Like it's not like they have their eyes closed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the temperature drops drastically, and they all heard what sounded like someone gently tapping on the window. It's the little things like that that really creep me out about this story. It's like all this big shit's going on and just a little. Yeah. Like really subtle thing in the fucking corner. Anyway, when Jean finally gets the lights back on, the place is an absolute mess. Cushions, ornaments all over the floor and shit. But here's where shit gets weird. The plate they had carried the sandwiches in on was still sitting there untouched. All the sandwiches were gone. They found some of them behind the TV. I don't know what happened to the rest of them. Intact? Like, as they made them? All intact, except Jean picked up one. And in horror, found that something had taken a big bite out of it. Oh, what? They could literally see the teeth marks in the bread. What the fuck? But whoever or whatever had taken this bite had huge teeth. <gasps> like, bigger than Shut people's up. teeth, right? Yeah. Reen kept the sandwich so as she could like show it to people as as a as evidence of what happened. But after a few days, it simply disintegrated into nothing but crumbs. I like to think that she was just really rough with it. <laughs> like in my head, she was like, "I don't know what happened." But like she's like crumpling up this fucking sandwich. No, no, it's like she's put it, She's bringing it in and out of her pocket her jean pocket yeah, yeah, showing it all up stuff like. <laughs> but also <laughs> you know it is bread and bread doesn't last very long no. anyway so i'm like i don't know if anything paranormal necessarily happened after the bite <laughs> oh shit so <laughs> I just imagine Manny is all in her back pocket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gross. So the following week, Reen went back to the house after they had all been out. At, well, her and Jean had been out at a ladies night at the local workman's club. They were sitting around drinking coffee and the lights went out suddenly. This was followed by things flying around the room and a deafening noise. All this banging and crashing again and reen felt as though her hair was full of tiny ants or bugs Ew. yeah and she was also hitting the face with a cushion <laughs> <laughs> pillow fight bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so this time when joe finally got the lights back on the place again was a complete disaster pictures ripped off the wall chairs upside down and shit just thrown all over the place reen i think was trying to think about like as an investigator would, you know what I mean? Trying to put this as like a little case file, maybe. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think she took notes or anything like that, but she had some sort of experience. And I think she was friends with people who were that way inclined as well. So she would go in and try and just understand what's happening. Anyway, Philip and Diane had been suffering from stomach problems, which would become worse whenever all this activity stirred up. Diane said, she was feeling, quote, twisted up inside. Now, to me personally, this sounds like they were just suffering from anxiety, constantly feeling on edge, like something was about to start up. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally understandable. Sense. Yeah. Reen theorized 
that Fred was actually feeding off the energy from their solar plexuses. Solar plexi. That's a chakra. Yeah. So it was also a well-known fact at the time and that this house, and I'm pretty sure most of the houses on the estate, had an underground stream flowing beneath them and Rean suggested that this was another energy source. Mm. And this is fact. Like, Is there like what, limestone under the house? I don't know about limestone, but I know that this underground stream goes under there. Mm. Like for a fact, that's not just them having a guess. They actually struggled to build the house. Or what if he was rearranging their insides? You wouldn't know. I mean, yeah, you're not going to know. But anyway, this was the first time these, someone was actually trying to think with ghost theory, yeah. <laughs> if that's a thing. And she doesn't sound wrong, like you were saying, like that is a chakra. Yeah. But at the same time, these kids are going through a hell of a lot. Like, mm-hmm. So it could have also just been stress, stress and anxiety, yeah. Stress can do a lot of things, to, and it's it's such a simple word, and it's thrown out so casually that one forgets how much damage it can stress can do. actually do to the body, to the mind, just to so much. Like, it's not just the saying, like, oh, I'm losing my hair because of stress. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's like, a legit that's a thing. real thing. And you can stress yourself. To the deathbed, to yeah. your own deathbed. Even without a poltergeist on. The yeah. <laughs> so imagine like some fucking unseen force taking this huge monstrous bite out of your sambo. <laughs> yeah, they actually call them sarnies in that part of the world. Mm. Reen actually suggested that they tried to communicate with Fred. Like, again, these people had no experience. It's not like there was ghost TV shows or anything at the time. Yeah. So the Pritchards stood out in the hall with their hands joined together and tried concentrating to see if they could persuade the poltergeist to manifest itself. It did precisely that. There was a sound like a loud wind rushing down the stairs and then over the top of the banisters came a shower of objects. Bedding, boxes, ornaments, mattresses, apparently every movable object in the upper part of the house just came flying down on top of them. That sounds so... Like that sounds how, like a time. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't even know if you'd necessarily be, well, obviously, you, you would be scared, but I think the that pure like, shock of it, like, this yeah, thing. Like some Fantasia shit. Yeah. So, <laughs> Joe's sister, Maud, didn't believe any of this. Okay, I think she was uh, an, inva- an evangelical Christian. Has she ever seen any of this stuff happen? She thought the whole thing, this whole Fred thing was just a load of bollocks and that the kids were just being little shit. She was embarrassed about the whole thing. Mm. She thought this was like a smudge on the family name. Ah. So she came over to spend the evening with them and like, you know, put an end to all this nonsense once and for all. Oh, good. Yeah. They were all sitting around and I think tensions were pretty high because to be honest, Maud doesn't sound like this. The author who wrote this is really opinionated like, no, no no like you know like stereotypically english and restrained mm-hmm. so he never says anything like to put anybody out mm-hmm. but from what i could gather mm-hmm. this woman was an arsehole okay <laughs> um, so you were able to wade through the niceties yeah i read through the lines mm. between the lines anyway they're all sitting there 
And I think Maud had actually been quite rude to the kids, mm-hmm. saying, like, come on now, get a hold of yourself, stop acting the ham. <laughs> but Fred showed up in typical fashion anyway. They're sitting in the kitchen, or kitchen dining room, and suddenly the temperature drops, the lights go off, and they still had the light from the electric fire. I mm. don't know if you've ever seen them, you know, like, you can turn them on so it just looks like there's a fire, mm-hmm. and then there's another setting to actually heat the place. Yeah. But anyway, so they had that red glow providing just enough light to see the fridge door swing open. Then a jug of milk floats out of the fridge and over Maud's head. Nice. Before it is slowly poured all over her. Maybe she was thirsty for milk. (laughs) Obviously, she was quite shocked and immediately jumps up and starts blaming the kids straight away. But Jean had managed to get the lights back on in the meantime. And she assured her it was nothing to do with Philip and Diane and just got to work mopping up the milk. Still not convinced that it wasn't just the kids acting the prick, Jean suggests that maybe Maud should spend the night, spend the whole night with them and just see what happens. Yeah, Maud. Yeah, Maud. (laughs) So she says fine, just to prove that it absolutely is the kids. And in my notes, it says, she seems like a spiteful bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny that you felt the need to tell yourself something yeah. you've already known. Yeah. But this whole situation reminds me of Harry Potter. Remember when the Dudley's aunt comes over mm-hmm. and he inflates her? Yeah, she was a she was a right old cunt. <laughs> yeah. This woman seems maybe not quite as bad as that, but similar fucking character. More activity continues throughout the evening, but it's always preceded by the lights being turned off. Maud suggests that they lock the cupboard under the stairs to stop whoever it is going in there and turning the lights off. Obviously, they've already tried this, and they know that it's not a fucking person doing it, so it doesn't work. But Fred goes on and empties the fridge and dances every item from the fridge through the living room. Like Fantasia. Like Fantasia. Including a string of sausages that the kids thought was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Just this dancing string of sausages. And also, Maud misplaces one of her gloves. She wore these fur gloves and could only find one of them. Okay. They all went to bed fairly early and Diane, Jean and Maud all slept in Philip's bedroom. Philip slept in Diane's room. I guess he had a bigger bed or something. And this is what happened. Quote, Jean Pritchard had only just climbed into bed when the disturbances began. The reading lamp rose into the air, sailed slowly across the room and out through the door. Then they saw something moving around the door. A closer look showed that it was the four small bulbs that produced the glow effect of the electric fire downstairs. Two of them were now dancing around the top of the door and the other two near the bottom. Then they saw hands. For a moment, they were petrified. One enormous hand appeared over the top of the door, while the other was near the bottom of the door, about six inches from the floor. A closer look showed that they were Aunt Maud's fur gloves. Whatever, or whoever, was wearing them must have had enormous arms, since there was a stretch of well over six feet between the top glove and the lower one. Aunt Maud, who was of an evangelical disposition. <laughs> in fact, a member of the Salvation Army. 
pointed accusingly at the gloves and said sternly, Get away, you're evil. (laughs) She picked up one of her boots and flung it at the door. The gloves vanished. Jean Pritchard, in spite of her nervousness, could not resist saying, Do you still think it's the kids doing it? Zing. Then the gloves reappeared, floating into the bedroom. One of them seemed to be beckoning them, as if trying to persuade them to follow it. Gross. How fucking creepy. None of us moved, said Jean Pritchard later. We were too scared. Then the glove clenched into a fist and shook threateningly in Aunt Maud's direction. Aunt Maud responded by bursting into onward Christian soldiers. At this, the gloves began to conduct her singing, <laughs> beating in time. Jean Pritchard admits that she had to smile. <laughs> then the gloves vanished again, and Aunt Maud said decisively, You've got the devil in this house. None of them had much sleep that night. When Aunt Maud left the next morning, saying that she wouldn't stay there again for £20,000, her gloves were nowhere to be seen. Jean Pritchard later found them in the bottom of the cupboard. She returned them to Aunt Maud, but Aunt Maud refused to touch them. She carried them into the garden with coal tongs and burned them with paraffin on the rubbish heap. Now, another, like, obviously, that, that whole fucking episode is <laughs> just the most insane thing. Like, you're dead right. Because in my head, I was picturing Mickey Mouse gloves. Mm-hmm. So Fantasia must have been <laughs> in my head as well. But going from being this gigantic threatening monster yeah to it's like controlling her yeah Yeah. completely so it seems like it's definitely intelligent (laughs) i wouldn't be surprised like as it's yelling at every as mod was yelling at everyone else the glove is just going like this yeah 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 just being a troll and then like maybe start making shadow puppets (laughs) with the gloves but it goes from being like horrendously creepy to, to insulting really funny yeah and insulting so quickly it and it's it not wants. something this is something that i'm going to come back to next week but it knows like it's aware of what's happening in the house yeah clear no it does yeah. absolutely there's no question so the next i'm going to go through a list of these random little events yes that happen me. now over the next few months rattle them off so as scary as fred definitely is a lot of his tricks were just that tricks pranks and mere annoyances and like i said i'm going to tell you a handful of his antics a gloveful a gloveful (laughs) (laughs) one day the family were all sitting in the living room when an egg just floats through the door it stops in midair purposefully stops and then falls and smashes on the floor oh good yeah yeah love that when it smashes the room fills with the strong scent of flowers Hmm. Philip was the only one who found it heavy and overpowering. I don't know if that meant he just didn't like this particular scent or if it smelled completely different to him. Hmm. But after the first smelly egg smashed, another one came floating through the door and Jean thought she's got to be proactive here. So she runs (laughs) out past the second one as it breaks, takes all the eggs out of the fridge puts them in a wooden box and sits on top of the box. (laughs) Oh my God. That way, they're not all going to be smashed. I'm assuming that she had just been to the grocery store that day or something. And that way they can turn into baby chicks. (laughs) (laughs) Fred was better than that, however. And as she sat on her box, 
an egg just <laughs> materialized in front of her and exploded, releasing this lovely flowery smell. Did she check inside the box to see if it was one of those? The author actually, or did he get it from a chicken? The author actually called these scent bombs, <laughs> but <laughs> Jean was obviously freaked. She jumped up off the box and checked, and sure enough, there was Whoa. one less egg. She closed the lid Magic. and sat back on it again, <laughs> but Fred continued this trick until That's all the so family's crazy. eggs were sitting broken in the middle of the room. Now the theory of rearranging their insides doesn't seem so weird, does it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> and again, these are all just like random displays of power. That's so crazy. Another day, one of the neighbors calls in to tell Jean that someone had thrown all of the contents of Diane's bedroom all over the front garden. The windows weren't open. All the shit was on the ground in Whoa. the front garden. The neighbor even helped carry everything back in because it was so much shit. But according to the next door neighbor, this neighbor lived across the road, the next door neighbor, this happened to all three bedrooms on different occasions. Hmm. And like no warning. It's not like they heard it happening. All their yeah. shit was just lying in the front garden. Yeah. Jean went to the cupboard one day, get herself a cup of tea, only to find that the tea and sugar had been completely emptied and then mixed together carefully, whatever that means. So he's just ruined both the tea and the sugar. Mm -hmm. Like the smallest fucking thing. But how annoying, especially if you're like, <laughs> oh, I'd love a cup of tea right now. <laughs> oh, shit. One morning at four o'clock, Jean got up because they had all been kept away all night again from Fred's cacophonous racket. <laughs> Only to find the doorknobs of the bedrooms had been smeared with jam and hung with toilet paper stuck to the jam. Oh, I thought you were going to say smeared with shit. No, no, no. Thankfully not. Yeah. The stairs, though. Just food waste. Just food waste. The stairs had also been smeared with a mixture of mustard and marmalade. What? All the way down the steps. What? Yeah, in, in the, the middle hell? of the steps. He's really having fun with food oh, right now. Yeah. And so this is the thing. It's thought that maybe if Jean hadn't been such a tidy person, that Fred would have like lost interest and wouldn't have done any of this. But Jean was known to keep an exceptionally neat and tidy house. Oh, then absolutely. Yeah. And even on that particular morning, Joe, the husband, was like, fuck it. Just we'll clean it later when it's actually time to get up, not four o'clock in the morning. But no, she couldn't. She had to go downstairs, fill up a bucket and clean the whole place. Yeah. Wasn't, the sun hadn't even come up yet. It's like, no, the place is going to smell like mustard. And jam and <laughs> fucking marmalade. And flour eggs. Yeah, yeah. Another annoyance for this list is how he just takes things, like Maud's glove, for example. Reen called over to the house one day, and she arrived in her white mohair coat. But when it came time to go home, the coat was nowhere to be seen. Mm. She even had to borrow somebody else's coat. That sucks. Yeah. They found it weeks later, buried under the coal in the coal shed. Oh, what? White fucking hair. Oh, that sucks. It was spotless. What? Yeah, they said they pulled it out from underneath the coal and there was no marks on it. What? Just, I don't, I don't know. They should get God. a refund on their coal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's defective. <laughs> and then one morning, Jean was getting ready to clean the fireplace. She knelt down in front of it and suddenly a bunch of keys rained down on top of her head from inside the chimney. Keys? 19 in total. They were all 
all of the keys from the house, like for the different doors of the house, mm-hmm. all except for one very old key that they never found out what it was for. Random. Jean held on to it like as a keepsake. Yeah. But again, just another totally fucking random yeah. thing. I was then, expecting more food, like slices of deli ham just rained <laughs> from the chimney. Well, it like it just keeps getting fucking weirder. Another weird incident, which I kept seeing mentioned, but nothing really that went into detail. So I don't know if it happened just the one time or multiple times or what. But they went to get water from the tap in the kitchen. And when they turned on the tap, this greenish, foamy, viscous slime substance. What the fuck? Came running out of it in place of water. Gross. The same stuff came out of the toilet when they flushed it. It also appeared randomly on the cupboards in the kitchen. But as quick as it appeared, it disappeared. So they couldn't even get a sample of it. Like, Yeah. Again, this one might have been a one-off or a recurring thing. I really can't say. But talk about like pure Ghostbusters shit. Yeah. Jean heard a weird buzzing coming from somewhere in the house one day. When she eventually tracked it down, it was emanating from her wardrobe. Any guesses? Uh, a phone? 1968. Oh, uh, a vibrator? <laughs> That's what I was thinking as well. Uh, wait, uh, a pager. No, that's well uh, before their time. When she opened the door to the wardrobe, she finds a swarm of bees. <gasps> Shut the fuck up. Yeah, she was quite severely injured. Like, she suffered quite a few bee stings. Yeah. I don't even think it was a beehive. Like, you couldn't say, oh, well, they must have been building it. It was just the bees. Yeah. In her fucking wardrobe. Let me look up when vibrators were made. Oh, like back in the 1910s, 1920s or something. Vibrators. Because men couldn't do it themselves. Oh, yeah, because... So they... They had to outsource it to the robot. No. Remember they used yeah, things doctors like that. Yeah, doctors would use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Women, yeah. That's right, with women that were, quote, in hysterics. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, because men couldn't do it. And still can't. (laughs) (laughs) The only difference now is you don't need a prescription. (laughs) You're funny. So his powers, Fred's powers weren't only limited to within the house either. Or food, yeah. Or food. I'm just fixating on this. That he's fucking with, but that's so crazy. I've yeah. never heard anything like that. I know. And other than the bees, all this stuff is just kind of funny pranks. Yeah. And maybe for the 60s or 70s, bees were still just a funny prank. You know, the way people were just hardier back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh my God, we get all these bees. It's going to be so funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's going to go into Fred, end- Welcome to Jackass. <laughs> Today, I'm going to fuck at my mom all day today. (laughs) So anyway, a friend was visiting the house one evening and he parked his car in front of the house. When he was leaving, he found that his window wipers were just going ham. Yeah. And he thought like, oh, fuck, I left the car running. And then he was like, no, they're just going completely on their own. Yeah. So his first thought wasn't like a paranormal thing or anything. He Thought something had maybe short-circuited or there was a problem with something. Okay. Brought the car to the mechanic the next day and I'm like, oh man, everything's good. Yeah. Just complete fucking freak thing. 
The same guy also noted that as he drove away from the house that night, it seemed to be glowing. Like the whole house was just had this light so around it. weird. Yeah, super weird. Like the weird. movie. Yeah. And the other strange thing is that he wasn't the only one who would point this out. Mm. And again, while it couldn't be blamed like 100% on paranormal activity, it was also noted that during the whole time Fred was this active, the Pritchard family's electricity bills were consistently half of what they had been in non-haunting times. So they were around £20 a month or a quarter or whatever previous to Fred showing up. And when Fred showed up, they were only around £10. Jean was such an honest person that she even got in touch with the electricity company to say, oh, I think there's something wrong with your meter because we're not paying enough. Oh, my God. And they came out and checked it. And they said, no, love, like this. Because, you know, like you can tamper with them, like jam a nail in, slow them down or whatever. But they said, no, 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 it's fine. Just enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Because <laughs> Fred keeps turning off the fucking lights. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe that's it. They just weren't using as much electricity. Yeah. Fred's actually green. <laughs> yeah. <it is. laughs> uh, my next note here is, do you remember Vic? I must have forgot that I just <laughs> said that. <laughs> I can see a glimpse into our future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, dear. And then I, I also go this. into it. Vic was Jean's brother-in-law from across the road. <laughs> he was the one who went to Vicar when, okay. Uh, gonna love that. <laughs> so Vic was actually a Catholic. Okay. And he must have been the only Catholic. But he figured that exorcism was still, you know, the solution for this, like, one-stop shop. God will get it out. But he goes to a, his own priest and told him what the crack was. The priest tells Vic that exorcisms have no effect on poltergeists occasionally they work in cases like this but more often than not they just make matters worse Hmm. did you know that no had you ever heard that so the author of this book um i'll reference him later because he it's a really cool book but he made out that this was just common knowledge Wow. Like, no, 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 exorcisms never worked on poltergeists. Strange. It only makes them worse. Which now, now that I've heard this, I'm like, well, actually, that makes a whole lot of sense for all these other cases that, like the demon of Brownsville and other things, like maybe it's not demonic. Possession. Yeah, maybe it is just, well, they're fucking poltergeists. You know, when they're like fucking off crucifixes and stuff. But, uh, but I wonder, like, you know, the more you talk about this, the more I'm just like, what exactly is a poltergeist? Like, yes, I understand. We're saving that for next week. Oh. Because there's a big chunk of this book. Okay. Dedicated to oh, that. Oh, so this is a three. Oh, yeah, you mentioned this. This is a three-parter, three yeah. I mean, to be honest, it could be a whole fucking series on its own. Like, <laughs> aside from Weekly Reap, but Are I'm we- keeping it to a three-parter. So anyway, yeah, th- this priest sounded like he just didn't want anything to do with this case. Anyway, yeah. he was kind of like... Uh, you know, like, I'd have to get the bishop involved. And anyway, it doesn't really matter who actually says the prayers. Like, yeah. I'm just another man. Like, you yeah. are a man. Yeah. Come on, man. We're all just men. So here, look. Here's the deal. Here's a bottle of holy water. Go fucking nuts. Yeah, go for your life. That's an exact quote oh, from that free <laughs> But no, that's the impression that I got. He really was just like, yeah. oh, here, just you do it. Yeah. He told Vic to say the exorcism prayer and all. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. He wasn't like even holding that on a pedestal like they usually do. So Vic goes back to the house with the holy water 
and Jean wasn't really too into the idea. Like after what happened the last time, you know, activity ramped up quite a lot after the vicar arrived. But she was like, oh, he's after going to all this trouble. Mm-hmm. I best just leave him, let him do what he wants. He's only trying to help. Nothing happened as he went from room to room. And he started in the kitchen, went upstairs, and he was leaving the living room for last because this seemed to be where Fred was most powerful. Which I thought was funny because I thought upstairs was... Anyway, Jean asked him if the priest had told him how long it would be before they knew whether it would work or not. But as she asked this, they heard a huge crash from upstairs. And then she saw water running down the walls, which they made out to be Fred saying, like, fuck you and your holy water. Yeah. I can make water too. Yeah. I can make. (laughs) That night carried on as usual. All the loud noises and shit. Diane being the main focus of the activity. Diane, the daughter. She just kept getting thrown out of bed. Nobody got any sleep. But again, Diane was just left. Like when it came time for school the next morning, it was like she needs the day off. Yeah. So she did. She managed to get a few hours sleep on the couch in the living room the next morning but that afternoon as diane stood by the kitchen fireplace combing her hair in front of the mirror jean noticed that the table drawer was gently sliding out then it shot across the room and hit diane in the small of her back making her gasp at the same time she experienced a familiar sensation in her solar plexus that sinking feeling that seemed to indicate that something was about to happen In the centre of the mantelpiece, there was a brass crucifix with an image of the crucified Christ, which is what a crucifix is. As Diane stood in the middle of the room, this suddenly leapt from the shelf and stuck against her back. It behaved as if it were made of iron and Diane was a magnet. Diane looked in the kitchen mirror to see what had struck her and tried to pull it off. It was impossible. She began to feel panic-stricken. Get it off me! Jean tugged at it but it might as well have been glued on. Diane rushed into the hallway, feeling as if she was wrestling with some impalpable force that surrounded her. Something fell onto the floor. Not the crucifix, but the image of Jesus. At the other end of the hall, another cross fell off the wall. Suddenly, Diane was free. When Jean raised the back of her blouse, they found a cross-shaped red mark between her shoulder blades. It stayed there for days before it faded. This happened not long before Easter, and as Jean was coming down the stairs on Easter morning, she was met with the lovely floral scent which now accompanied Fred. If we ever get haunted by anything or anyone, I hope that we get this smell. And that and rotted, that, get rotted egg. Yeah, that like horrible sulfuric smell. Yeah. But again, this feels to me like, the sp- like Fred's way of fucking with them. Yeah. You're like, oh, such a nice smell. Now it's associated with... Mm-hmm. shit going down like yeah anyway on this He's like e- smell me i smell fucking amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah. flowers bitch well i knock your shit off the walls yeah he's basically an invisible cat i mean yeah <laughs> yeah anyway on this fine easter sunday she found inverted gold crosses had been painted on all of the doors downstairs and three more on the wall Jean noted that they had been sprayed on with such precision that it looked like they were done with a stencil and there was no brush marks either. Weird. Professionally fucking done. She went up and like was touching them and be like, what the fuck is this? 
She suddenly remembers that Philip had actually bought a can of gold spray paint to repaint his bicycle with. What the fuck? Yeah, so this was like, maybe it was Philip acting the dick. But she went and found it and tried to reproduce one of these crosses. She sprayed the door, but because the, p- the door was painted with gloss paint, the spray paint was just running down, yeah. like in dribbles. Mm-hmm. And she was just left even more in awe of what Fred was capable of. Yeah. Jean did think that this was a step towards like the darker side of things, though. And it, it scared her. Like She decided to go back to the vicar and just asked him to come to the house and take a look, which he did, accompanied by another clergyman, probably for fucking protection. And again, this was still Easter Sunday. So they told her, look, leave everything the way it is. We'll come back after like the holiday is done with. I guess priests get pretty busy around Easter time. Yeah. But you know what? Chicken butt. They never came back. Oh. Yeah, arseholes. So why are we an hour and a half into a series on the Black Monk of Pontefract when we haven't even heard any mention of monks? Yeah, I was wondering about that too. Yeah, monks of any color for that. I'm only here for the monks, I hear you say. (laughs) (laughs) The only reason why I started listening was for the monks. I thought You mentioned monks. Well, let me tell you. One evening, as Jean and Joe are in bed, their bedroom door slowly opens on its own. And there, standing in the dim-lit landing, they see a tall figure that seemed to be wearing a hood over its head. Now, they said this thing was like the height of the door. Oh, shit. They quickly switched the light on in panic, but as soon as they got the light on, it disappeared. Both of them saw it, though, both Joe and Jean. Mm -hmm. And Joe was quite the skeptic at this point as well, still. What exactly was he skeptical of at this point? I think he just didn't want this this stigma following him. I think he didn't want to be seen as, oh, that's the one living in the haunted house. And he's like, ah, it's all a load of bollocks. Like, it's just the house settling. Anyway, one morning, Mrs. Mountain, remember the next door neighbor? (laughs) Yeah. So the house where she lives is connected, like it's a semi-detached house. The Pritchards are on one side and Mrs. Mountain is on the other. Mm -hmm. So one morning, she's sitting at her kitchen sink when she felt someone standing behind her. She didn't hear anyone come in and assumed that it was her nephew who had sneaked in to make her jump. She said something like, oh, give over and looked around. She found herself looking at a tall figure dressed in a black monk's habit with a cowl over his head. Its position prevented her from seeing its face. She told me that it looked quite solid and that, oddly enough, she felt no fear, only curiosity. Then it vanished. Rean Holden, Rean of the mohair coat. Yeah. She also caught a glimpse of this monkly figure one night. Her and Jean had gone to a local spiritualist church to talk about what they were going through and what they had experienced. And one of the churchgoers had actually driven them to and from the meeting. So when they got back to the house, they invited him in for a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. And nervously, he agreed and went in. As Rean was crossing the lounge on her way to sit down, the lights suddenly went out. To reassure the man, who was obviously terrified, Rean reached out and put her hand on his shoulder as he sat in the armchair. As she did so, she felt a hand on the back of her head. She glanced underneath her outstretched arm and saw in the light that came through the curtains a long black garment, like a dressing gown. 
descending to within an inch or two of the floor. Then the light came back on and the man in the black robe was no longer there. Around this time was when Fred seemed to be at his absolute strongest. The drum show that he put on every night was deafening and again people were literally gathering outside just to fucking hear this. He had also started to make farmyard noises. So the family would randomly hear noises like chickens or a cow coming from one of the rooms. And like obviously they would go in to check and the room would be empty. Noises like... But I don't think it was just like a moo or a cluck or even like a recording sound. It was like an atmospheric reproduction of what a sound might, of what a farm might sound like. I came up with that myself and I'm very proud of it. I think would have been what would have been more scary was would be a person making those noises like moo. (laughs) Yeah, but like that. But you know yourself that like, you you know, when you hear voices in the other room, like there's a certain quality where you know whether it's people or the TV. Yeah. yeah. Where this sounded like if you open that door, you would be in a fucking farm. You felt like you expected a farm. Yeah. Another thing that started happening, and I found this particularly creepy. The Pritchards would be lying in bed at night and they would hear heavy breathing coming from the landing. The lights would be switched off from the breaker downstairs when this would happen. And if Jean tried to use the flashlight she kept by her bed, either the bulb or the batteries would be missing. That's some serious psychological warfare, Mm -hmm. if you ask me. And obviously they all slept with their doors closed as well. So just to hear that, knowing that somebody was on the other side. Yeah. And they were always too afraid to go check because this thing had turned the fucking lights off on them. Yeah. One evening when Diane had gone to the kitchen to make a coffee, the lights went out. And while Jean was groping for the torch, she heard Diane scream. It was dusk, and there was, in fact, enough light to be able to see their way around the house. They found that Diane was being dragged up the stairs, and it was light enough to see that her cardigan was stretched out in front of her, as if Fred was tugging at it. His other hand was apparently on her throat. Philip and Jean rushed up the stairs and began to try and pull Diane down. She was yelling with terror. This was the first time it had, quote, laid hands on her, so to speak. Philip and Jean went tumbling back down the stairs with Diane. Philip has the impression that it was his thought of trying to touch the presence that caused it to let go. He made the interesting comment, quote, it always seemed to be ahead of you. Diane had to be given a large brandy. In the light, they saw that her throat was covered with red finger marks. It was about this time that Jean came downstairs one morning and realised that the hall carpet was soaked with water. Then, as she looked, she saw footprints on the wet surface. Huge footprints. That's insane. There's just, there's so much. So then, one day, Philip and Diane were both in the lounge watching television when Philip looked around and saw a shape on the other side of the frosted glass door that led to the dining room and kitchen. Diane followed his gaze and also saw the figure. It might, of course, have been someone that had just walked in, but when Philip opened the door, he saw the tall, black shape of the monk vanishing. He said it seemed to disappear into the kitchen floor. Weird. Yeah, middle of the day as well. And that was it. What do you mean? No more monk? That was the last time Fred made an appearance, made a noise, 
anything. For the Pritchards, at least. Okay. Nine months of pure mayhem. And it was another 10 years before this guy came along doing research on the topic. Mm -hmm. That was it. Life just went back to normal. That's so strange. Yeah, so this final sighting happened around the same time that a friend of Joe's suggested they fill the house with garlic. Everyone knows the old vampire thing, but apparently the Scottish used to use garlic to ward off spirits. Huh. Now, they were desperate to try anything, but I think the activity had just finally played out. The garlic thing was just a coincidence, but it is worth mentioning as well. That's truly strange. Yeah, and I will say the person that we talk about the least in this whole thing is Joe. Like I said, he was very skeptical. Very much a man of the times, no time for any messing around. But he had an experience of his own which he told very few people about. Mm-hmm. He was in the coal shed, getting coal or cleaning up or doing something, when suddenly the door slammed and locked behind him. And then he realized he wasn't alone in there. Oh, no. And whatever it was, it attacked him. That's all we know. But that event changed that man and put the fear of God into him, Oof. from what I've read. And it was from that point on that he finally started believing in his family accepting what was going on like not understanding it but it completely changed that man's life yeah the pritchards continued to live there and joe actually died in the upstairs bedroom i want to say in 1986 Mm -hmm. i might be wrong but that's the only death that's ever been recorded in the house Mm -hmm. is joe yeah so next week i'm gonna try and get into where all this started how like there's obviously there's loads of different fucking rumors much like the Sally House or the Sorel Weed mm. House where, oh, you yeah. know, this happened and that happened. Yeah. But like I said, that's not quite the end of our series, just the end of the Pritchard story. Okay. For the most part. Anyway, I will be mentioning them again next week. But yeah, I was just absolutely blown away by all this. I also want to get into the theories behind what the poltergeist energy is. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, now I'm not saying I know any of the answers or anything, but there's a couple of things that stick out in this book that I just had never heard of before. And when I was reading them, I was like, shit, you know what? Yeah. Maybe that's it. Okay. So there you go, creeps. I hope you're enjoying this so far. Reach out to us and let us know, because if you prefer these deep dives, I will buy more books. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll definitely be using this one particular book. Actually, yeah, shit, I better... So again, my sources this week, much as last week, are Colin Wilson's Poltergeist, a case study in destructive hauntings, and The Black Monk of Pontefract, the world's most violent and relentless poltergeist. And that's the book that'll be the main source for next week. Cool. So yeah, I think that's about it. Uh... Oh no, it's The Black Monk. If you have any spooky stories to send us, make sure to send them to weeklycreep at gmail.com. If you don't already follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, do so. Um, leave us a review. Tell us how we're doing. Oh, yeah. Definitely leave us a review. I if like nothing to read else, those. Yeah, it makes, a, makes us smile for the day. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess that's about it. Join our Patreon. Okay. All right, bye. Bye.